0: Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzezemski.
1: Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, sitting in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe, and I'm joined, of course, by my trusty sidekick. Tom, Dorian. Dorian. Tom you, you doing go. okay? I'm well and you? I'm doing fantastic. Tom, you want some more pancakes or are we you good? I'm good with the apples today. Yeah, apples. Right, the fruit. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, good. We we have a wonderful show. You need you need your energy because we have got a great show. We're going to have to like sort of stretch ourselves. High octane show. You know, Tom, we've had what well, we've had bishops, we've had cardinals, right? We've had an, we've had ambassadors. We've had even a prince on our show. This yeah. is the first time we're stepping it up a notch. We it's the first time we've had a philosopher. Big time. Right. This is so This is going to be like an, an interesting program. So uh, if you're driving, you probably want to pull over to the side of the road because we don't want to <laughs> be responsible for any accidents <laughs> right. that might happen. We are. We are joined by uh, Dr. Peter Kreeft, and we are so honored to have you here, Dr. Kreeft. Welcome to the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. Thank you very much. I can see you're wary of philosophers. Never trust them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, coming from a philosopher, I appreciate that. Um, And we should say that you are a professor. Uh, You teach philosophy at Boston College. Yes. You've right? been doing that for a long time, haven't you? Yep, almost 50 years. You must like it. I do. Uh, and that's awesome. And you also are the author of numerous books on, on varying topics. And you're well known as a theologian, as a philosopher, as a, uh, a Christian apologist. And we wanted to maybe focus our discussion a little bit today on, we're going to start a new thing here at the Catholic Cafe where we're talking about why Catholic? Why, why am I a Catholic? Why not something else? Right, And so you would be, I think, the perfect guest for this topic and talk about w- why you selected the Catholic Church. Because obviously you made a selection at some point in your life. You were born something else, and I think you were a Calvinist, right. if I'm not mistaken. Right. So, Dr. Crave, tell us, why are you a Catholic?
2: Well, I think there's only one honest reason why anyone should ever believe anything, because it's true. So the next question is, why did I get convinced that the Catholic claims were true? Yeah, going to that truth thing is kind of hard, though. I mean, The you know, T word. Yeah. That's exactly right. I mean,
1: <laughs> Pontius Pilate kind of wrestled with that. We all wrestle with that at times.
2: This is why, of all the philosophies in the history of the world, what's usually called postmodernism or deconstructionism is the one that's the most destructive and the most worthless. It, it says basically the only truth is that there is no truth.
1: I uh, will tell you, by the way, doctor that on our show we do have a a moratorium we don't say any isms right we try to keep this for the people right so don't just be care just be aware of that as you move in so you're you're against (laughs) ismism or anti-ismism i won't i won't say anything about
2: deconstructionism because my mother wouldn't like it she used to say if you can't say anything nice about somebody don't say anything at all
1: (laughs) (laughs) wise words
2: wise words well why is the catholic faith true well the essential claim of the catholic faith is that the Church, the visible living Roman Catholic Church, is the voice of Jesus Christ through the Apostles and their successors, the Bishops. Catholics don't figure out every Catholic doctrine for themselves and say, well, you know, I figured out the Catholics are right about purgatory and right about Mary and right about the Pope and right about the Mass. Gee, isn't it uh, a coincidence that they're right about everything? Right. I'm the expert. Mm-hmm. No, they trust the church. Church is, is mother. Mother puts the food on your plate, and mother knows what food you need, so you eat it all. So the essential argument is about mother. Who is mother? Right. Well, uh, at Calvin College... I began to fall in love with things Catholic for intellectual reasons or aesthetic reasons or or other reasons and I thought it was a temptation so I took a course in church history taught by a very good Calvinist professor and the very first day of class he said someday you're going to meet a Roman Catholic and they're going to say what church are you in and you're going to say I'm in the Calvinist church and the Catholics going to say oh you're in the wrong church because you're in the church John Calvin founded 500 years ago we're in the church that jesus christ founded two thousand years ago what do you say nobody had an answer so he drew two pictures on the board he says well here's the catholic theory of church history and here's our protestant theory of church history catholic theory is that jesus planted the church like a little seed a little acorn and it gradually grew until it became this great big oak tree that you now see and even though the Catholic Church today doesn't look like the simple little church in the New Testament any more than an oak tree looks like an acorn, it's the same thing. It's historical continuity. I thought to myself, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What, what's wrong with that? But
1: as a Calvinist, you weren't allowed to think that.
2: Well, he said, this At is what's wrong allowed. with it. This is what's wrong with it. He asked the class to refute that. Nobody could. So he did it. He drew another picture, a picture of Noah's Ark. And then he drew some little spots on the outside of the ark. He said, Anybody know what those are? Nobody knew. He said, Those are barnacles. Know what barnacles are? And somebody said, Yeah, barnacles are these hard things that that accrue on the the hull of a ship. They come from the sea, and if you don't scrape them off, they'll sink the ship. Exactly right. Now, these Catholic doctrines that Catholics think came from Christ through the apostles and their successors, uh, we don't find in the Bible. And therefore, we find that they're barnacles. They came from pagan sources. They came from outside the church. And the church got corrupted gradually more and more uh, in the Middle Ages. So by the time of the Reformation, uh, there were some deckhands on Noah's Ark, like Luther and Calvin, that said, hey, we better scrape the barnacles off. So they went out over the deck and and scraped off the barnacles. At that point
1: supposedly there were fifteen hundred years of barnacles. Fifteen hundred years of barnacles, (laughs) right. Got so bad that the ship
2: was gonna sink. So he said, the Catholics are really the new kids on the block, not us. We we restored the old church. We didn't create a new one. So I raised my hand. I said, Professor, does that mean that if my Catholic neighbor and I both took a time machine back to the first century and worshipped in the Church of the Apostles, that I as a Protestant would be more at home than he as a Catholic. Wow. And he said, that's exactly what I mean. Wow. A no- strange way of putting it, time machine and all. So I said, oh, great. All I have to do is read the Church Fathers and see how Protestant they are, and, and then I can know that I'm in the right church. I didn't want to become a Catholic. I didn't know any Catholics. It would be very inconvenient. My friends would right. misunderstand me. So I started reading the Church Fathers on my own, and I was amazed to discover how Catholic they were. Mm. Amen. And there was no sudden heresy that came in from outside that corrupted the church. There was a seamless web of, of continuous development. The thing that blew me away was the real presence in the Eucharist. No Christian denied it, except Berenger of Tours, the 10th or 11th century heretic. That's right. Until the Reformation. So I said, wait a minute. I believe these Catholics are worshiping wine and bowing down to bread, thinking it's Jesus Christ. And that's a ridiculous mistake. How could the Holy Spirit be asleep for 1,500 years?
1: Hmm. Wow, and so now that had to uh, rock a few boats, maybe even your own boat a little bit at that point in time, though, because you you had a worldview at that point, a Calvinistic worldview. This is the way, was that the way you were raised? You were oh, raised yeah. as a Calvinist, yeah. so y- you were basically had that point of view, and you went through you viewed everything through that lens. Did this crack the lens, or uh, oh, not at all? Just added to it. When a, when a Protestant becomes a Catholic, it's like a
2: Jew becoming a Christian. He becomes more Jewish, not less. You put on a one more coat. Jew. Yes, right. In fact, I regard myself as more of an evangelical now as a Catholic
1: than I could ever be as a Protestant. Well, the, wow. the, the, the true the view gospel. of the evangelization, of the whole idea of our call to evangelize. The complete gospel, Christ and his body, yeah. Well, well now, were you, uh, how old were you at this time in your life? Uh, 20, 21. So just like last year for you, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> right. Time flies. Uh, so w- did your family respond well to this? No. My father was an elder in the church. Oh, yeah. And I think
2: he would have been less shocked if I had become an atheist because he thought the Catholic Church was like the whore of Babylon. When so many do. It took years. To, we had good open discussions, and we didn't convince each other, but at least we convinced
1: each other that we were both loving the same Christ. Now, I— teach a lot of rcia classes and i know that one of the things that i always try to prepare especially when i find out their history and their background and they they'll say well i was raised this or that and they will not have a supportive family structure at all in that faith and i try to help and help them because i know they're on a journey and i know they they really believe god's calling them into the fullness of this faith and yet when they go back home they're not going to get that supportive pat on the back i'm gra- glad you found jesus or or whatever they're going to basically be uh, pummeled uh, yeah. and did you do did, did you experience that yourself was that oh yes uh, everybody does uh god asked you to make a sacrifice but uh, when you get married
2: you don't have the security of living with your parents anymore But you have the joy of starting your
1: own house. So the new convert always has great sacrifice and great joy. Right. And so then once you moved forward at that point, it was really just uh, learning more. At what point in time from that, that awakening to that possibility, how long did it take for you to be received into the church? I was received into the church at Yale the following
2: year. Uh, in fact, the very first day on campus. In Is September. there a black
1: at Yale right now somewhere in no, the world? <laughs> no, no, no.
2: But a good Dominican Church. I uh, eight o'clock in the morning. I rang the doorbell. Priest came down in his uh, nightshirt. I think I woke him up, and he said, "Yeah, can I help you?" I said, "Father, I want to become a Catholic." You know, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. How, so he, how old
1: were you at that point? Twenty-one.
2: Okay. So he smiled and said, that's nice. Who's the
1: girl? Yeah, who you're marrying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we experienced this in RCIA as well, (laughs) that there's a lot of partnerships involved in uh, conversion. And, you know, that's that's an okay way to see things sometimes. Well,
2: there was a girl, but she came later. Right. Uh, she was the only Catholic girl that I knew, and I asked her to be my godmother when I was receiving into the church. There was nothing romantic there. And she joked, uh, hey, uh, Father, if I should fall in love with this guy, what's the problem? Oh, there's a real problem here. You can't marry your godmother. That's spiritual incest. you got <laughs> <laughs> to get a special dispensation from Rome. Two years later, Father, remember that
1: dispensation from Rome? So I married my godmother. That's a beautiful, beautiful story. Well, we're going to talk more about your trip into the Catholic Church and maybe help some others with their their journeys. We have lots of folks that listen to the Catholic Cafe who are not Catholic and just want to find out more about what the church teaches and why. And we're going to talk about that big T word again when we come back. But before we do that, I want to remind folks at home that we have a wonderful website. It's www.thecatholiccafe.com. And you'll find lots about the Catholic Church at that website and also some links to find some uh, other information out if you, if you so choose. Also, I'd love to hear your story. would love to have you uh, email me at deaconjeff at com. And so we'll be right back after this.
3: I'm Bester Zemski and this is another great moment in church history. Lumen Gentium, or the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, was one of the sixteen principal documents of the Second Vatican Council held in Rome, and was promulgated by Pope Paul VI in 1964. This landmark exploration of the nature of the Church, her leaders, her people, and their relationship with God delves deeply into the heart and soul of the 2,000-year-old Catholic Church. The title, Lumen Gentium, comes from the very first sentence of this historic text, Christ is the light of nations, and establishes both the theme and tone of the entire document. In Lumen Gentium, the Council Fathers make clear that Jesus Christ is the very heart of the Church's identity. In paragraph 5, the Council Fathers state, The mystery of the Holy Church is manifest in its very foundation. The Lord Jesus set it on its course by preaching the good news that is the coming of the Kingdom of God, which for centuries had been promised in the scriptures. In the word, in the works, and in the presence of Christ, this kingdom was clearly open to the view of men. Before all things, however, the kingdom is clearly visible in the very person of Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man, who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lumen Gentium makes clear the purpose, role, structure, visibility, and authority of the one Church. Paragraph 8 tells us this is the one Church of Christ, which in the Creed is professed as one holy, Catholic, and Apostolic, which our Savior, after His resurrection, commissioned Peter to shepherd, and him and the other Apostles to extend and direct with authority, which Christ directed for all ages as the pillar and mainstay of the truth. This Church, Constituted and organized in the world as a society Subsists in the Catholic Church Which is governed by the successor of Peter And by the bishops in communion with him Although many elements of sanctification and of truth Are found outside of its visible structure These elements, as gifts belonging to the Church of Christ Are forces impelling toward Catholic unity In lumigentium the historic Ecumenical Council of Vatican II offered the people of God a new and refreshing look at the time-honored sacred traditions of a centuries-old institution founded by Christ Himself. I'm Bester Zimski, and this has been another great moment in church history.
0: Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff.
1: And we're back in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. Um, Dr. Crafe, do you need another refill in your coffee? Are you doing okay over there? I'm doing okay. All right, very good. Tom, now, I know sure. when Dr. Crafe leaves, you know, we'll be minus a philosopher, so I'm thinking that you should be our, uh, you know, our philosopher, the team philosopher here at the Catholic Cafe I would love that when option. Dr. Crafe leaves. But when he comes back, though, you've got a let I'll, him have I'll, the seat. I'll
2: let him have that seat. No awesome.
1: Problem. Wonderful. Because you'll make a good, good philosopher. I would. Yeah, very, I'm sure you would. I know would. you know that. Anyway, Dr. Craig, let's, <laughs> we're talking about your journey into the Catholic faith, but also I think a lot of people are listening to this thinking, well, that, some of this thought kind of parallels. Now, not everybody who's listening might be a Calvinist, but a lot of people have ideas that are different than, than what the Catholic Church might teach. Right, And so there were some specific things that kind of affected you along your journey, some different arguments, maybe some of them like from your Calvinist point of view about in terms of uh, predestination and who was being saved, who wasn't being saved, uh, and then this idea that, that Jesus came that many would be saved. How did you reconcile that, and, and how did that play into this movement for you?
2: There's two kinds of Calvinists, double-predestination Calvinist and single-predestination Calvinist. Double-predestination Calvinists say that God sends half the human race to hell and half to heaven. Single-predestination Calvinists say that God is active in predestination but not in damnation. You damn yourself. Right. I always believe single-predestination Calvinism, and predestination is true. It's in the Bible. It's in Romans. Right. But free will is also true. It's like a novel. The author predestines his
1: character to have free will. So they're both true. And a lot of people from the Catholic perspective, when you say that, you know, Catholics do believe in predestination, Mm -hmm. right? It's hard for people to fathom because they instantly start thinking Protestantism, right? They start Mm -hmm. thinking about those things. And so how do we explain that from a Catholic perspective? Calvin was something of a rationalist. He thought predestination and free will contradict
2: each other. And yet he loved Augustine, and Augustine was not a rationalist. Augustine loved paradox, and he was strong both on predestination and free will. And if we can't reconcile them totally, well, you can't even reconcile light being a wave and light being a particle in physics. Right. There's
1: mysteries everywhere. Beautiful. Well, I'll tell you, and I know one of the things I like to explain to people when I'm talking to someone, they're asking about predestination is i will talk about the idea that, you know, as a as a Catholic, we would believe that God knows what's going to happen, but we as Having free will, we we choose our destiny, but God kind of already knows where we 're going to be and what we 're going to do with if there's if we 're out of Chronos right I mean
2: yeah, but he doesn 't predict he 's not a fortune teller he 's not in time predicting the future he 's the eternal contemporary of every event,
1: yes he 's not wearing the big Swami hat or whatever and looking at a crystal ball yeah. uh, and and uh, obviously that would be the case now, there are some other things that influenced you, and I know that uh, I read somewhere the this idea that for instance, the the Bible, where it came from, hmm. you know, that's a pretty sticky wicket for for most Protestants because they believe that the Bible is an errand; it's the word of God, and that it came from God. Yet it didn't appear really in its f- uh, finished form until Jesus three four hundred years.
2: Jesus did not write the New Testament; he was the a church, subject. The church did. <laughs> So if the church is not infallible, how do you know that the New Testament is infallible? How can you get an infallible effect from a fallible cause? You cannot
1: give what you do not have. Exactly. I know there's a big Latin phrase for that. I can't pronounce it, but but it's an it's a interesting uh, concept that a lot of Protestants wrestle with that. In
2: fact, in most Protestant denominations, faith in the authority of the Bible is decaying precisely because it doesn't have the church and the teaching of the church
1: to, to back it up. Now, speaking of some of the teachings of the church, I know that you also... I had this idea that, well, you know, if we're, as St. Paul says, even, even death will not separate us from the love of Christ and the body of Christ, that, that, that even in death we might, there is a logic to, to this idea of praying to saints, of speaking with the saints, right? Communion but obviously that's, that is outside of the Protestant realm, though. The first Catholic idea that bothered me was
2: one of the, my, my Protestant friends at Calvin said, why don't we pray to saints like Catholics do? Because we ask each other for prayers, why can't we ask them for prayers? What's wrong with that? Right. And I saw nothing wrong with it. And then I remember reading a, a biography of a, a Protestant preacher who said, when I was a little kid, my father died. And that night, as usual, I prayed for him. And mother said, you must not do that, son. We are not Catholics. Yeah. And she slammed a door in my face. I knew that wasn't true. I knew that there was some connection between the dead and the living. And the connection is love.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's a beautiful sentiment, but it, it just troubles people. I guess sometimes they may not look at the logic or the, the sort of natural law of things, right, the, the the natural response that we would have, and they'll look like, well, I'm not allowed to do that. That's why I don't do that. Mm-hmm. Or I hear this phrase a lot, it's too Catholic, as you just expressed.
2: But the heart is naturally Catholic. When you die and there are still people that you love on earth, wouldn't you want to, to know them and help them and pray for them? And Amen. wouldn't God want you to help to do that? Amen. It's instinctive.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this idea that um, that the saints would be the, the objects of our prayers, I guess, is, is, is what—there's um, some misunderstanding well, sometimes. Well, not misunderstanding. We don't worship saints. Absolutely not. Uh,
2: pray to saints. That's old English. Pray past the mustard. It means please. It's a, we ask them to
1: pray to God. Amen. Right. Beautiful. Now, I know also that you had sort of a profound experience. Maybe it's a, a younger guy. When you uh, went into St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, tell us about that.
2: Oh, I must have been 8 or 10 years old. It was probably the first Catholic thought I ever had in my life. Never been in a Catholic cathedral before. My parents and I were in New York. uh, And I was just stunned. This was not just a more beautiful building than any that I had seen, but a different kind of beauty. So I turned to my father, who was a very good man. And at that point, he had always answered every question I ever asked him infallibly. I said, "Dad, this is a Catholic church, isn't it?" Yeah, they're wrong, aren't they? Oh, yeah, they're very wrong. How can their churches be so beautiful then? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he said, "I don't know." Well, I just filed that away. Here's a mystery. But I said, "If if they're so wrong and there's so much falsehood and so much evil there, how
1: can it produce such beauty? And how come I feel so close to God here?" That's a that's a beautiful notion. And I, actually, I think you should be thankful that your that your father did. He spoke those words that are, that are hard to speak for some people. I don't yeah, know.
2: An honest man.
1: Uh, that's, and that's a good thing that at least you didn't file that away in the drawer uh, to be thrown away later. Yeah. Right? You actually filed that away, and, and you called, called it back into mind perhaps at the uh, at more towards the end of your journey into the, the fullness of the faith that where you're able to say, well, now I know. You know, I,
2: I think beauty isn't just a, a satisfaction of human desire. It's not just our relation to some beautiful object. It's, it's a pointing finger. It shows you something. I know three ex-atheists who were converted by the music of Bach. Oh, they really? All, they all said, there is the music of Bach, therefore there
1: must be a God. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the only proof of existence of God they need. Yeah. Well, and so that should also, we should speak, let's talk a little bit about Catholic churches these days, right? There was a trend over the last, uh, let's say, 40, 50 years to start building these monstrosities, these great meeting rooms, these meeting spaces versus sacred spaces or, or holy places, it's an
2: attack on beauty. It's a fear of beauty.
1: The old language too of some of
2: the Bible translations and literary translations were deliberately unbeautiful and unpoetic because it was
1: feared. That's being restored.
2: The church is being. Do you restored think there's
1: a there's a little bit of a seed of an ancient heresy about uh, you know fear of the body and and sure
2: sure it's it's a kind of a puritanism. Uh, you find that in, in, in Protestantism, a fear of, of,
1: of the opulent and the gorgeous and the beautiful and the awesome. I had the opportunity to walk into a, a parish church in our diocese that had recently been renovated, and they did a bang-up job. And it had been the first time I'd been in that church since they'd started all the renovations. And I walked in, and it took my breath away, literally. It took my breath away, and I started to think about that that moment and started, it just drove home the idea of why a, a beautiful Catholic church is really a statement about God, right? And it and should play into, it. it's not, you can have church anywhere, but but it's so much more beautiful when it's in that beautiful setting. This is why God made matter in the first place, to show spirit. All, all of matter is like a finger, it points beyond itself. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Now, in terms of some of the early church fathers that had the most profound effect on you. I know St. John of the Cross apparently had a really profound effect. Tell us about your your relationship to his writings. Well, I discovered the writings of the saints,
2: both the early ones and the later ones. St. John of the Cross is is much later. Uh, And I had never experienced anything like that before. Uh, I didn't understand the great saints and mystics. I was just a kid, 18 or 19 years old. But I said, this... This is not shallow. This is, this is Everest. This right. Is, this is big. This is massive. Uh, it, it's like going into the cathedral or hearing your first Beethoven symphony. You know that this is of a different order of, of, of magnitude. Right. Uh, I loved Augustine. Uh, I fell in love with Augustine, especially The Confessions. That, that's a book that just has a spectacular union of head and heart the statues of Augustine, in the Middle Ages always have a a book in one hand and a burning heart in the other. Uh, If I had to go to a a desert island for the rest of my life and I could only have three or four books, the Confessions would be one of them.
1: Now, do you feel that... uh uh, sometimes I, I like to talk about, when I talk about the church fathers or reading the church fathers, it's kind of like, you know, we all stand on the, uh, the, Shoulders the shore. giants. Well, I was going to say on the shores of the ocean, right? And oh, you look nice. out at the ocean, you see this vastness, and you can't help but say something stupid like, if we could only harness all that energy. But you, you suddenly get a glimpse into something that's way bigger than anything that you're used to thinking about. And so the first time I started reading the Church Fathers, I started having that same effect that, like, these guys, they knew what they were doing. This is profound. This is not just—this is not trivial writing. That's exactly
2: the impression I get. You know, most philosophers are very good on logic and analysis, and, and, and they focus very well. I have ADD, so I don't focus very well. So I get big pictures, intuitive pictures, and that's exactly what I got out of the Church Fathers. Their worldview was so much bigger and more
1: awe-inspiring than the modern one. I know as, as Catholics, we're, we're into our traditions, we're into our history, and we like to think about being 2,000 years old. And I know that many historians have looked at us and have seen the Catholic Church, um, you know, at, at peaks and valleys, right, at different, different places uh, all throughout our history. Where would you see our Catholic Church? What is the state of the Catholic Church, in your opinion, today?
2: The tide is turning. We've lost a generation or two. We're getting it back again. We're getting JP2 priests and bishops, and they're good people. And the seminarians are uh, orthodox and happy and enthusiastic. Uh,
1: definitely the tide is turning. So it's a beautiful thing. That, so that would necessarily mean that we've come out of a valley then. Yeah. Yeah, pretty bad trough. I, I don't think the world has come out of it yet. Probably. That's why the, God is bringing the church out of it, because the church has to heal the world.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: This, is the, this is the hospital for sinners, isn't it? Exactly. It's it's the not a museum for saints. Well, I love your optimism. Uh, and we could probably do uh, 10 or 20 shows, but we're just going to settle for the one now. I understand you're a busy man, have lots to do. And we really appreciate uh, you, Dr. Crave, for coming and spending some time with us here at the Catholic Cafe.
2: Thank you for all the great questions.
1: We're going to end in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, you are the author, creator, and sustainer of all life. Through the gift of your Son's death for us on the cross, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, help us to grow to know, love, and serve you in this life that we may be truly happy with you forever in the next. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. For more information, visit us on the web at thecatholiccafe.com. You'll find many links to Catholic resources on the web. You can also listen to previous shows online, download MP3s, or take advantage of our podcast feature. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to Deacon Jeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by The Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.